Welcome to the Robert Half Legal Report, where we discuss current issues impacting the legal profession related to hiring, staff management, and more with leading experts in the field. Robert Half Legal provides lawyers, paralegals, and support staff to law firms and corporate legal departments on a project and full-time basis. The Robert Half Legal Report is here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome back to part two of our cybersecurity discussion on the Robert Half Legal Report. With us today are Tom Barnett, Rocco Grillo, and Joel Westoff. Rocco, what are some of the key factors to be addressed in a comprehensive security plan? Well, I think one of the first pieces we talked about was preparation, but having that repeatable process or a framework. We go into an investigation, we're searching for the unknown, that proverbial needle in the haystack. And further to that, um, a lot of times companies may identify the particular issue and they're quick to get into containment mode. While containment is important and we want to isolate the problem and in many instances separate it from the rest of the network itself so we can resume normal business operations, um, that key piece before containment is identification. We need to know what has happened, almost in the sense of like police officers recreating the crime scene. We need to identify what happened. We may identify a particular area of compromise. If we focus on that and isolate that particular area and don't have the full picture of what's occurred, we may overlook some critical factors. And while we may be addressing a particular compromise, there may be other factors. That may be a diversion. And the attacker may be in a different part of the environment in stealth mode, harvesting or gathering data unknowingly to the company itself. And as the attention is focused on the obvious, the overall compromise or attack is still ongoing. So it's critical that we identify what's going on holistically. From there, you know, an eradication process further to recovery. When is the breach over? When can we resume normal business operations? And that final piece, as I mentioned earlier, uh, lessons learned. As much as we want to get past this, get back to our normal business operations, there's a lot of uh, lessons learned there, a lot of critical information that we've identified. And as I said earlier, things that went well, and as much as we want to say everything went well in our response, there's areas that we may need to improve on. We need to take advantage of that. So I think that process from end to end, from being prepared to containing the issue, to recovering all the ways to uh, lessons learned is the key to um, you know, an overall comprehensive uh, incident response plan. And I'll just add, one of the things I think all of us come across are uh, key stakeholders within the enterprise, within the corporation, who have so much knowledge about an institution and how things are done, but have failed to document those, either because they just haven't had the time or, or for other reasons. And I think the key part of, the, of having a comprehensive documented security plan is to reduce the outliers, reduce all the information being stored in someone's brain. Um, in particular when that person leaves. So a few things that we may have mentioned before, and I'll just recap. Uh, we've talked about the inventory of an information system, where data is located, where your systems are, uh, where all the controls and permissions are and what they are. 
a need-to-know basis. Most clients are familiar with, with that concept in general. Uh, it's important to keep data systems updated with the most current software patches and antivirus software. My question, or one of our questions maybe, is is what does that mean? How quickly do you have to patch your systems? So what's a reasonable response in that regard? And the last two or three, uh, strong encryption protocols for stored data, including the cloud and data that's transmitted over wired or wireless systems. And then finally, have an incident response and recovery plan in place that is tested. And we talked a little bit about teams and testing those teams on a regular basis to make sure that an organization is not just documented ready, but actually reality ready and proactive and be able to handle something on a 24 by 7 by 365 days a year basis. Joel, one other piece to add off of the stakeholder and the testing from, you know, I think the theme we've heard about is preparation, but the awareness of the plan, because in a lot of instances, we can have the most mature plan in the world, but at the same time, if one, the stakeholders aren't aware, and two, end, end users aren't aware. There's instances where an end user may be in a situation where the, someone may be trying to get information out of them through a social engineering tactic. While the employee may stop the person or thwart that effort, they need to know who to call or have them points of escalation that if that should happen to an employee, they need to know that there's a process in place of someone they should contact. Because in many instances, if they turn that attacker away, um, nine times out of ten, they may go and try to um, hit up another employee as to you know, whether or not they're going to give out the information. Um, we had a couple of other situations where you know, the effectiveness of the plan from an escalation standpoint was taken into account. The security organization or even the IT organization responded effectively to the breach, but executive management, while they were stakeholders, they weren't aware of the responsibility. So it's not just about I'm on board and I know that we have a plan. They need to know what their role is. Another situation that um, a company had us come and take a look at from a post-mortem standpoint was that the security operations team responded effectively to the plan from an operations standpoint or from a technical standpoint, but it took the organization days until senior management was notified about what happened. Well, as much as the IT organization responded effectively, think of the impact of uh, notification, especially to external parties, if senior management or executive management or legal for that matter, wasn't made aware until days later. So again, different pieces that need to be taken into account, not only the stakeholders being involved, but at the same time, the awareness component that comes into play. And really, it's ultimately down to preparation, which comes through a repeatable process that's continually tested. One point I'd like to emphasize that Rocco and Joel both hinted at, but I think is very critical, and particularly with respect to the role of outside counsel, is communication. Uh, Rocco just mentioned communication within the organization, obviously extremely critical, and that can have legal ramifications as well. One of the very important aspects that needs to be integrated and in part of the plan is the external communication approach. Who talks for the company? Who can speak on behalf of the company? What can they say? How is it discussed about what level of disclosure is required by law? What is appropriate? What makes sense? We've had cases where people uh, at companies are obviously so alarmed and so worried about the, the bad press they may be getting that they quickly want to jump out there and talk about 
you know, the things are under control, they're better, they're solved. Well, that may be the case, but it may not be the case. And you can get into even more trouble by making pronouncements that, that the issue is over when it's not over. It can hurt the reputation. It can have all sorts of legal implications. So I think a communication plan, who notifies who, when, who speaks for the company, what's the process for determining the actual status so that the communications are meaningful and also crafted in such a way that protects the company, I think is a very, very critical aspect of any plan. Great information. And when we think about the integral part of security management planning, could you outline, uh, all of you maybe uh, chime in here, but maybe Rocco uh, kick us off. Could you outline uh, some of the actions to take when the breaches occur? Can you discuss some of the key components that should be included in the effective incident response and recovery plan? Well, I think the first piece we've heard throughout the communication and points of escalation, which ultimately involves the appropriate stakeholders. But you know, going back to, I think, one of the earlier questions we asked, how do we know for sure that we've been compromised or what should we do when we're compromised? Well, we want to retrace the steps of the attacker or the compromise itself. What happened? We want to recreate the crime scene or the scene of the compromise. And to that end, It starts with technology, but it's also process. One of the first things we ask for are the logs. You know, companies need to monitor who's going in and out of their network, who's accessing their data. And again, as much as um, various individuals are permitted, if someone is accessing, if we see an anomaly in the logs, obviously we've identified an issue. Once we've identified the issue, then we go into that repeatable process that I mentioned earlier and carry this through step-by-step to containment, to getting it you know, isolated and removing the compromise from our environment and putting protections in place to prevent either the hacker from coming back or at the same time preventing as best that we can from the same issue occurring again. And from there, going through the steps that I mentioned earlier, um, what went well, what didn't go so well, and it's an ongoing process. So unfortunately, um, it's not one of those issues that we put it to the rest and we're all set. Unfortunately for compromised entities, as we've seen in a lot of instances, now the victim of the compromise has the big antlers and there's a lot of instances that the same attackers or other attackers will come back and try to commit the same um, attack again. So again, it's ongoing due diligence to prevent this from happening again. That's great. Anything to add um, from Joel or Tom, uh, or did that list uh, cover it? Yeah, no, absolutely. I just think it obviously has to be extended. We're increasingly seeing the same type of scrutiny of of our services and our process and our information uh, infrastructure with our large financial banks, hospitals, you know, healthcare type institutions and law firms, where they're asking us to submit you know, similar documentation. That the chain of the data flow isn't broken at any particular point. So those are the same issues, and we sit oftentimes the same seat or uh, adjacent seat as some of the clients in terms of making those a priority. Sure. I think another key piece that we want to consider in this, especially from the legal standpoint, public disclosure. That is something that really needs all the stakeholders to weigh in on. Because one, from an IT perspective, we want to know the facts of 
what did we actually lose? Was data exfiltrated? Do we need to disclose publicly? And in many instances, we've seen companies disclose too soon. And it's not to say that withhold information, um, but at the same time, get the facts and report on this from a factual standpoint. You know, all too often a company may disclose that we've had X amount of data compromised or X number of records compromised only to come back days or weeks later and say, um, have to repeat that the compromise was much larger. So again, as much as we want to you know, do the right thing, we need to make sure factually um, we're correct with the information that we're disclosing. One other component of that, which I, I wholeheartedly agree with, and I think is especially important in the legal department and the outside counsel area, is that the things that are said need to be really scrutinized because they can have an effect in subsequent legal proceedings that evolve, whether they're civil lawsuits, you know, potentially shareholder suits, customer class actions, or governmental actions, regulatory enforcement or criminal enforcement. So how you say things and what you say uh, needs to be highly thought out and scrutinized. Obviously, everyone wants to be disclosing and say what's going on, and Rocco made great points about knowing where you're really at before you talk, but there also are significant legal ramifications for what you say, how you say it, and when you say it that need to be considered in conjunction with legal Thanks to each of you for that great content. Let's go ahead and take a quick break before we resume. To find, hire, and retain the best legal professionals, it's critical to have a sound hiring strategy in place. Robert Half Legal works with law firms and corporate legal departments to create effective staffing plans that can adapt to changing workload levels, realize significant cost savings, and improve the overall management of human resources. We offer a wide range of resources to assist hiring managers and job candidates, including our annual salary guide, industry-leading workplace research, and valuable interactive tools. For more information, call us at 800-870-8367 or visit roberthalflegal.com. Welcome back to the Robert Half Legal Report. With us today are Tom Barnett, Rocco Grillo, and Joel Westoff. Talking about data breaches and cybersecurity, slightly switching gears, how can companies determine their readiness to withstand a cyber attack? I know each of you have touched on it, but you know, is there a short list that you all could give us uh, for that help? Sure. I think one of the first pieces is having a response plan. You know, and as much as we have a plan to respond, the repeatable process, how mature is it? And do we have the right stakeholders involved? And a lot of that starts with the tone at the top and having governance around it. This isn't just an IT or security issue. It is an enterprise risk management issue. It is a business issue. You know, we've seen some of the high-profile breaches in the media or in the newspapers that, you know, point out, you know, the impact of this and it immediately becomes a business issue, becomes a reputational issue. Um, to your question itself, how can we you know, understand how ready we are? 
Well, for starters, there's a lot of different frameworks that help us build security governance and help establish that tone at the top. But back to a lot of the pieces that we've spoken through this overall discussion, preparation is key. Um, Having that plan in place that goes hand in hand with being prepared, but also testing. You know, I said earlier, we're never going to have the crystal ball to predict the future, but we can play out different scenarios from a risk standpoint. What's the likelihood that a particular attack or a particular compromise may occur at our company? And, you know, carrying that out through simulated exercises, tabletop exercises, gives us a sense of what would happen if we were compromised, and it helps companies prepare to respond to the breach. I want to expand on something Rocco said that I think is very interesting and important. The difference between threat and risk. Almost anything is a risk. You know, there's a risk if you walk outside, you could get struck by lightning. But that doesn't mean you want to expend a whole bunch of resources making sure that that doesn't happen because the actual threat level is fairly low. So I think it's important for companies to really assess what are their actual threats, what's the level and the ranking of the most important threats they have versus just a a kind of a generic catalog of every possible risk. And if that goes to what kind of company they are, what kind of information they have, different companies have different types of information that might be sought after. Now, there's a certain level of risk that everyone needs to worry about, and certainly we've talked about some of that. But I think it's also important for companies to understand what kind of information they have, who's likely to want it, and what can they do to protect it? Because you can't protect against every single risk equally. So you need to prioritize them and devote your resources and time and energy into the ones that you determine are really the biggest threats. And I don't know if this has come up you know, in the context of our discussion, but it, it certainly bears repeating that there are standards in the marketplace. There's the NIST cybersecurity framework. There's ISO standards. There's SSAE 16, SAS 70. They're all, to Tom's point, they're not one-size-fits-all, and you do have to do that. Heavy lifting isn't simply reading the standard. It's adjusting and aligning your particular threat profile, your litigation profile, your exposure, your scope, your width, to the threat assessments that are out there and making a judgment call. So those do exist, but I think we've covered the most of them, I think, contain many of the things that we've addressed today. And it's up to the the decision makers, the internal counsel, outside counsel, and the the rest of the C-suite and IT staff to do a thorough evaluation and build a case for proceeding in one direction or another. And Joel, as a follow-up to that, based on your experience, what do legal organizations tend to ignore or overlook when it comes to security management? Certainly with respect to uh, legal organizations, I think that there's been a historic tendency to ignore or overlook the importance of security management when it comes to their own operations. And Tom's mentioned a number of those issues, as is Rocco. So I think what's happened, and it may be a cultural gap, but I think that gap is closing where law firms are not traditionally early adopters or tech-heavy. So I think what the law firms and forward-thinking law firms like Paul Hastings, obviously, are taking steps to make sure that they're looking both at the client risk as well as their own risk and third-party risk uh, relating to uh, security management. So I think that that's where we've seen is more of a holistic and personnel lack of emphasis historically, which I think is changing um, fairly rapidly. Um, And I think it's important to note that certain statistics that are in the marketplace that, that something like one in three companies surveyed by ProTivity's IT study indicated that they don't have a written information security policy. 
40% of survey participants said that their organization don't have a data encryption policy. And one in four companies noted that they don't have an acceptable use or records retention destruction policy. And Tom mentioned earlier, one of the key decision makers or influencers in these discussions are records managers. And so you have a number of different developments in the marketplace, breaches, et cetera, yet we still find a fair amount of companies that are not taking what I think all of us here would consider to be reasonable, prudent, and I would say necessary policy documentation, but also taking those documentations and making sure that they're operationalized and that they can be repeatable, as Rocco has emphasized. One area that's embedded in what Joel just said, I think that's an important area worth calling out, is the aspect of e-discovery or subpoena compliance in the context of a lawsuit or an investigation, a governmental subpoena. It's a situation where you often have highly critical, highly sensitive confidential information that's part of the company that they are then transferring to the law firm who will then transfer to an outside vendor and then it could be reviewed by contract attorneys. There's a lot of handoffs going on and anytime data is moving around like that, it's a very important situation that you need to look at closely. And I think sometimes there's so much emphasis on cost savings and negotiating the rates with e-discovery vendors, let's say, that I think sometimes the security aspects of that can be overlooked a little bit. So I think it's really important to understand these very uh, risky areas of data transfers of information, lots of different people getting their hands on it, having it go through many transformations. That's an area that could more, more attention and something we certainly do at Paul Hastings. We have very uh, stringent security requirements and testing that we do with our third-party vendors. The challenge comes in sometimes when the clients have their own list and they may or may not have gone through that level of security testing and auditing with their providers. That's great. Thanks to all of you. And before we wrap up, what kind of advice would you give senior counsel that you may be addressing regarding some of these potential pitfalls and risks? And maybe we'd start with you, Tom. When we think about the sort of high-level advice and what we really want people to think about and take away is that achieving a higher level of security and an effective security plan and process is not simply a matter of getting a checklist and checking it off. It's really an ongoing process that needs to be developed educated throughout the organization, refreshed, updated, keeping in mind the different changes that are happening in the outside world as far as the different threats and risk, and really that it's an ongoing business process and exercise, not something that can just be put in place and walked away from. Rocco's talked a lot about testing. That's extremely important. Practicing, updating, figuring out who are the right people to understand and be involved in the process, and really making it something that crosses many, many different lines within the company, not just legal and IT, which are considered some of the more obvious ones. Excellent advice, Tom. Thank you very much. Rocco? Sure. There's a handful of things that we could put out there, Chad. A lot of them we've covered already. But to that end, to wrap up, being aware, and that you know, it starts with that top-down approach, not just the executive management, not just IT or legal, but everyone from end to end. Um, being proactive and ultimately being prepared. Um, this is a continuous uh, process, continuous due diligence, and, you know, from a preparation standpoint, continuing to test and, you know, refine areas of improvement. Another area is 
I think we talked about this throughout the presentation, partnering. Um, there's multiple stakeholders. This isn't a time for someone to shoulder it all on their own, whether they're trying to do it on their own or at the same time being you know, the hero or the firefighter. Ask for help both internally with stakeholders as well as externally. There's a lot of threat intelligence organizations. There's a lot of uh, proactive organizations that provide information from a threat intelligence standpoint at the same time, working with your peers. Because again, in many instances, while um, attackers may target a particular company or industry, if it's affecting one company or one industry, there's a good chance that they're going to target other companies in the same industry. So to that end, um, I think a combination of all of these are essential in you know, responding to breaches. Thank you, Rocco. And Joel? Yeah, I would certainly endorse Rocco and Tom's comments. I, I think I'd just add or reinforce too. This is such a fast-moving industry, and the impact is, is so enormous that there needs to be knowledge management acquisition, obviously not just at the senior level but at the user level, uh, ongoing reinforcement of the importance of security and privacy and putting in place at, a, at an employee level the tools and the knowledge that they need to have. And then secondly, at a senior level, make sure that there is a senior level person who has oversight over this particular space, uh, has the sufficient expertise to know what needs to be done, has the authority to, to implement it and enforce the plan that the team develops, and who's held accountable for the success or failure of the information security program and its practice. And I think that's what we're seeing in the marketplace as these positions tend to become more critical to the organization's success and risk management. Thank you, Joel. Well, we've reached the end of our program. A special thanks to Tom Barnett, Rocco Grillo, and Joel Westoff for joining us today and providing their expertise and insights. Before we close, I want to let the audience know how they can contact each of you. Tom, could you provide the listening audience with your email address? Sure. Thanks, Chad. So it's Tom Barnett at paulhastings.com, G-O-M-B-A-R-N-E-T-T at paulhastings.com. Great. And Rocco? Sure. Thanks, Chad. I'd be happy to. It's rocco.grillo at protivity.com. That's R-O-C-C-O dot grillo, G-R-I-L-L-O, at P-R-O-T-I-V-I-T-I dot com. Thanks, Rocco. And Joel? Sure. My email is joel.westoff at roberthalf.com. That's J-O-E-L dot W-U-E-S-T-H-O-F-F at roberthalf.com. Again, thanks to each of you. And our listeners can reach me at charles.volkert at roberthalf.com. That's Charles, a period, then V as in Victor, O-L-K-E-R-T, at roberthalf.com. That's H-A-L-F dot com. I'd also like to mention a few professional privacy and security associations that offer educational resources, information, and best practices to help firms and companies better manage technology risks. The first is the International Association of Privacy Professionals, the IAPP. The second is the Information Systems Security Association, or ISSA. And the third is ABA's Privacy and Information Security Committee and the ABA Cybersecurity Handbook, a resource for attorneys, law firms, and business professionals. You also can visit roberthalflegal.com to learn more about our legal consulting solutions. 
Download our research and subscribe to our legal blog for weekly updates on the legal job market and other important industry developments. Thanks for listening today and join us next time on the Robert Half Legal Report as we cover another great topic impacting legal practice management and legal careers. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Robert Half Legal connects the most highly skilled candidates with the best positions in the legal profession. Join us again for the latest information in the next edition of the Robert Half Legal Report here on the Legal Talk Network.